if you would, um, follow along on your insert in your Bible um, for the scripture reading this morning. It's Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what Caleb just read, which is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us. Father, Son, and Spirit, our Creator, our King, and our Redeemer, we ask that you would hover over our hearts today. That you would continue your work of redemption and recreation in our lives. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your glorious beauty, that you would allow us to taste and see that you're good that we would leave this building different than we arrived. Have your way with us, Father. Convict us of our sin and convince us of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, my name is Jeff Wilkins and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church along with uh, Eric Quorum. I serve as one of the elders here. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. We thank you for the... uh, the, uh, the privilege of your presence, for the privilege of your time. What we are doing this fall in our sermon series is we are asking, 
one basic question. And that question is, why are we here? Not necessarily why are you here, why am I here, but why are we here? Why do we exist? Why does the church exist? What, what is our purpose? That's what we're thinking about this fall. Now, the last couple of weeks and what we're going to be looking at today and next week uh, come from the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And you might be wondering why we're doing that. Uh, I've never been on a safari. I watched Planet Earth and I've seen one on TV. And I don't know why you might want to go on a safari, but I'll tell you why I want to go on a safari. I want to go on a safari because you get to see animals in their natural habitat, right? It's pretty cool. You get to see lions sort of lounging in the shadows beside some rocks. You get to see giraffes eating leaves off of the top of some very tall trees. You get to see elephants standing in a gigantic lake, washing themselves with water. And and it looks like having a total blast. Well, there's a sense when you look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what you see is you see humanity in its natural habitat. Genesis 1 and 2 paints a picture for us of who we were created to be and what life on this earth was supposed to look like. And what that means is that these two chapters are absolutely essential if we want to understand why not only I'm here, but why we're here and what is our mission in this world. Now, last week, I said that one of the things Moses is doing in this passage is it's, it's as if he's walking us in front of a mirror and he's introducing us to ourselves. He's saying, I want, I want you to see who you are. And what we saw last week is that human beings are created in the image of God. And I suggested that that word image can be understood both as a verb and as a noun. As a verb, to be created in the image of God is to be created with purpose. It is to be, it is, is, is to be created to represent and to reflect God. We are created in God's image to image God. We image God as we are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We have purpose. We are created with a purpose and we are created for relationship. That's what we talked about last week. This week, I want us to think about the word image as a noun. And what I mean by that is that human beings do not just bear or, or function as the image of God, but human beings actually are image of God. It's human, like to be human is to be image of God. Now, last Sunday, I told you that in the ancient Near East, kings and pharaohs and rulers would have statues of themselves placed all around their kingdoms to represent them in their authority so that when people saw the statues, they remembered who is the king and who is not the king. What I didn't tell you is that in the ancient Near East, the only person who was ever called the image of God was the king. 
The only person who was ever called the image of God was the Pharaoh. The only person who was ever called the image of God was the ruler. When somebody was strolling down the street in Egypt or in Rome or in Babylon and they heard somebody talking about the image of God, the only person that came to mind was the king or the ruler or the Pharaoh. And here's the thing, that would have been how the Israelites who first heard these words, that would have been what they thought too. This was the air that they breathed. This was the water that they swam in. There is one image of God and that image of God, it's not you. It's the Pharaoh, it's the king, it's the ruler. But Genesis chapter one doesn't say that the king and only the king is the image of God, does it? Genesis 1.26 says that God created man, male and female, he created them in his image. And what that means for us is mind-blowing. The two things I want you to see this morning, well, the first of the two things I want you to see this morning is that this means that all human beings, male and female, are the image of God. Of God. And that is both profound and prescriptive. I don't think anybody has ever captured or articulated the profundity of what's being taught in this passage than C.S. Lewis in his sermon called The Weight of Glory. He writes, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. But it is immortals we joke with. Immortals. A little earlier than that, Lewis says this. He says, this is a serious thing. We need to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. And then he says this, and this is, this is what I'm gonna sort of wanna camp out on. He says, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. All day long, in some degree, we are helping each other to one or other of these destinations. Have you ever really thought about that? That all day long, you and I are to some degree or another, we are helping people that we work with. We are helping people that we go to school with. We are helping people that we play with. We are helping people that we drink coffee with to one or other of these destinations. Beloved, the Bible teaches and Jesus teaches, he unashamedly teaches that the future of a person who rejects Jesus Christ and continues to live in rebellion 
against God without repentance in faith is on the highway to hell. It's not something we like to think about and it's certainly not something we like to talk about. The 17th century devotional writer Samuel Rutherford said that no Christian should ever mention hell without tears in his or her eyes. The thought of such a future destiny for people whom our lives touch should be a strong incentive for us to share with them Christ and his salvation. Friend, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't know what it is that I'm talking about, then please, let's talk. And brothers and sisters, if you have a friend who, who doesn't know Christ, and we all do, you have to ask yourself the question, what destination are you helping point him or her to? Remember, Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And elsewhere he says, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. The people that we live with, the people that we work with are immortal. Our, our passage, our, C.S. Lewis says, our passage tells us that there are no ordinary people. Uh, there are only immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. But more than that, it tells us that human beings are creatures of incomparable value and dignity. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached this sermon called The American Dream a number of times. I actually read it in a number of different places where he preached it. It was slightly different in every different place. But on July 4th, 1960 something, he preached this sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church. It was his home church. And he said this, he said, the whole concept of the image of God gives every person a uniqueness. It gives every person worth, it gives every person dignity. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every person from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every person is made in the image of God. And what that means is, that every single person you meet matters. Male, female, black, white, adult, child, rich, poor, successful, or living on the street, believer, unbeliever, no person is ignorable. No person is disposable. No person is a mistake. That, that is profound. And it's also prescriptive. What I mean is that it both informs and transforms the way we look at and interact with other people. At least it should. You see, we live in a very polarized world. Just turn on the news. You'll see it. Watch 
Fox News and then flip over to CNN or MSNBC. They're all pointing fingers and saying mean things. We live in a very us versus them world. I mean, there are are Christians and non-Christians. There are straight people and gay people. There are Republicans and there are Democrats. There are liberals and conservatives. There are people who share your particular interpretation of a passage and then there are people who don't. There are people who share your particular passion and then there are people who don't. There are people who like your Facebook post and there are people who give it the angry face emoji. There are Presbyterians and there are Baptists. There are public schoolers and homeschoolers. There are rich people and there are poor people. There are husbands and wives and there are children and there are parents and we could go on forever. Now, why do I mention this? It's because to quote the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, it is very easy to exclude the other from the community of humans and at the same time exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. And here's the thing. Every single one of us here this morning has an other. Or we have others. We all have someone or someone's who we wish would just go away. We all have someone or someone's who we wish would just shut up. We all have someone or someone's who we wish would just disappear. But beloved, if what Genesis 1 tells us is true, no person is ignorable. No person is disposable. No person is a mistake. Neither the civil rights activist nor the KKK Klansman. Neither the social justice warrior nor the MAGA hat wearer. Neither the right to lifer nor the right to chooser. How can you know who your other is? Well, the apostle James gives us a couple of diagnostic tests in his lecture to help us identify who our others are. In chapter two, James says, show no partiality. Don't play favorites. And then in chapter three, he says, consider the words that come out of your mouths. Both favoritism and our tongues can reveal to us who our others are. So here are a couple of questions. Who do you favor? And who don't you favor? And perhaps most importantly, why? Or who do you talk about? And what are you saying? You see, God is telling us in Genesis 1 that everyone, everyone is created in the image of God. And as such, every person is worthy of dignity and honor and respect. Every person is worthy of our time, our prayers, and our listening ears. And you, and you think, everyone? Some of you may know the name Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is an African-American blues musician who goes to KKK rallies, but he doesn't go as a protester. He has invited Klansmen to his home and visited with them. He calls 
some of them friend, even as they call him inferior. When asked why he would do such a thing, he said, when something bothers me, I try to learn about it. And he, he reads every book on racism and the Klan that he can get his hands on. He asks questions, he gathers information, and most importantly, he listens. What has been the fruit of his labor? Sitting down with KKK Klansmen. What's, what's been the fruit of his, 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 his labor? Well, over 200 Klansmen, after getting to know him, and, and, and becoming friends have given Davis their robes. They've given Davis their robes. He has them hanging in his house. To what does Davis attribute this transformation? To simply sitting down and having dinner with people. You see, Davis believes what John Calvin once said. You might say he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. Beloved, you've got to ask yourself the question, who are my others? And then ask yourself another question. What would it take for me to invite that person or those people over to my house for dinner, that I might be willing to sit down with them and listen. You might be thinking, that, that's insane, that's, that's impossible. My response, sure, for you, but not for God. Pray, pray that God would work his grace in your situation. Pray that God would work his grace in your heart. I'm confident of one thing, that at the very least, God is going to change you. And perhaps God will also turn your other into a brother or a sister. That's how the image of God informs and transforms the way we see and treat other people. But there's something else you have to see, and that is this. The image of God not only transforms and informs the way we see other people, but it also informs and transforms the way we see ourselves. You see, you too are the image of God. Now, why do I point this out? It's because all of us walk into this room with a sense of self, with a, with a self-image, with an identity. And more than not, we, we derive our senses of self and identity from what others think of us. And that sense of identity, that sense of self has been shaped and molded throughout our lives by words of, of parents, of siblings, of boyfriends and girlfriends, of teachers, of coaches, of husbands and wives, of employers, of friends, even of rivals and enemies. Words like, you are so good. Or you're terrible. Or words like, man, you're beautiful. Or man, you're a dog. Or words like, 
you have such promise. Or you're going nowhere. Or you are so intelligent and gifted and talented. Or you're going to be working at McDonald's the rest of your life. You're a winner. You're a loser. You're so cool. Or you are so weird. Those words, they are incredibly powerful. And each time you hear them, they are etched deeper and deeper on your heart. And they leave this indelible impression upon you, shaping you and molding you and impacting the way you see yourself and understand yourself. You ever heard of Carl Rogers? Carl Rogers was the father of client-centered therapy. After decades of research and observation, having met with tens of thousands of clients, he concluded this one observation. He said, the central core difficulty in people as I have come to know them is that in the great majority of cases, they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. But do you see what we see in our passage. Look at verse 31. After God creates the heavens and the earth, climaxing in the creation of Adam and Eve, he looks at all that he's made and he says, it is very good. God's benediction over his creation and God's benediction over our first parents isn't based on anything they've done or not done. It's not a moral evaluation. It is a being evaluation. What God is saying is that human beings, by virtue of their being the image of God, are of infinite value. And what that means is that you are of infinite value. Do you believe that? But Jeff, you don't really know me. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know my doubts. You don't know my struggles. You don't know my hypocrisy. You don't know my failures. You don't know my flat out rebellion. And I'd say, you're right. You're absolutely right. But here's the other thing I'd say. God does. King David in Psalm 139 reminds us that God discerns our thoughts from afar. That even before a word is on our tongue, the Lord knows what we're about to say. That there's nowhere where we can go to escape God. That when we think that darkness covers us and hides us from God or blocks us from God's view, even the darkness is not dark to God. That darkness is actually light to God. God knows what you think about when you lay in bed at night. God knows your fantasies. He knows what you watch on TV or what you look at on the internet. He, he knows your selfish bent. He knows that you are a sinner and that I am a sinner. The image of God in each of us has been defaced. It has been marred, it has been deformed, it has been dirtied. But here's the thing, it still is. 
And yet, knowing everything he knows about you, the father sent his son to live and die for you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If you're like me, somewhere along the line, you concluded or you got the picture that God the Father is just angry with you all the time. He's just frustrated. He's sort of, he's sort of sitting on his throne up in heaven and his, his face is all red and steam's coming out of his ears. And he's so frustrated because you and I, we are such screw ups. And every time he's about, he, he points his finger at us and he's about to zap us. Jesus steps in and says, oh, no, 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 dad. Don't do that. Don't do that. I, I paid for that sin too. And the father agitated and frustrated acquiesces. And what you need to know is that is absolutely wrong. What Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms in John 3 and what Paul tells us again in no uncertain terms in Romans 5 is that God the Father loved us and then sent his son so that he might redeem us, so that he might rescue us, so that he might restore us to the people we were created to be so that he might renew us into the image of God so that he might once again speak over us those words you are good beloved this is love not only of Jesus but also of the father and of the spirit Jesus doesn't love you any more than the Father or the Spirit, and the Father doesn't love you any less than the Son or the Spirit. How deep the who, whose love? How deep the Father's love? How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons and daughters, I would add, to glory. Do you know what that means? It means by virtue of our creation and by virtue of our redemption, the Father can say over you, you are good, you are very good. Not as a moral evaluation, but as a being evaluation. And as a new creation, it's not anything that we have done, but it's because of what he has done for us, both in creation and in recreation. What this passage shouts from the mountaintops is that you are glorious. You are significant. You are valuable because you are image of God. Even though you are deeply flawed, even though you are full of contradictions, even though you struggle, you are like a castle. Even in ruins, you are magnificent. And I'm guessing that some of you hear this and you think, Jeff, you are full of it. You've been reading too many of those self-help books. You, th this is just sort of self-esteem mumbo jumbo wrapped up in biblical language. God loves you as you are, love yourself. Beloved, that is not what I'm saying. If, if, if that was what I was saying, 
Jesus would have just, when he came down, he would just come down and he would sort of just dusted us off and set us on the path and said, go. But that's not what he did, is it? Jesus came and he died. Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a piece of wood. What does that tell us? Well, number one, it tells us that our sin is very serious. It is deadly serious. But it also tells us that we are deeply, deeply, deeply loved. That God the Father would send his son to live and die for us, it's inconceivable. What you need to know and what I need to know is that God loves you not unconditionally, but contra-conditionally. God doesn't, God, God loves you in spite of who you are. And God loves you enough not to leave you as you are. What happens? What happens when the penny drops? What happens when, when you begin to, to get this? For those who don't know Christ and the light goes on. Paul tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. New creation. For those who walk with the Lord, as this truth bores its way down into our hearts more and more, we are renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. What does this mean for tomorrow? Well, maybe you know the name John Perkins. Uh, John Perkins is a Christian minister. He's a civil rights activist, and he's also African-American. But I suspect that very few of you know the name Tommy, Tommy Terrence. Tommy Terrence at one time was considered the most dangerous man in Mississippi. He was a member of the KKK, and it was reported that he was involved in some 30 bombings of synagogues, churches, and homes before he was captured and sent to prison. I mean, these two men couldn't be more different. They couldn't be more opposed. And yet, do you want to know what happened in 1994? These two men wrote a book together called He's My Brother. Now, how do you explain that? It's a love of God in Christ Jesus that melted Terence's cold, hard heart. And it is the love of God in Christ Jesus that softened John Perkins' heart. It is the love of God in Christ Jesus that took enemies and made them more than friends. It made them brothers. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of God controls us. That it enables us to regard no one according to the flesh. You used to be a member of the KKK? No big deal. You, 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 you embezzled? No big deal. Actually, it is a big deal. Jesus died for it. Don't get me wrong. but it's not a deal killer. The love of Christ controls it. It enables us to regard no one according to the flesh. And, and it graciously gives us a ministry. Do you know the word that Paul uses to describe the ministry that God gives us? 
reconciliation. Reconciliation. First and foremost, it's reconciliation between God and a person, no doubt. But it is also reconciliation between people with one another. The Father's benediction at creation, it is good, it is very good, means that everyone is image of God and is worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. And the blood of Christ at the crucifixion tells us of the deep, deep love of God for us. These things wedded together free us up from self-loathing. They free us up from self-hatred. They free us up from self-concern. And they fuel us up to be able to sit down and listen to and even love our others. Would that this community would be made up of people who cannot exist together outside of this community because the grace of God has worked so deeply in our hearts that he has taken enemies and he has made them brothers and sisters in Christ. If you would pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for for revealing to us our sin, our lack of care and love for others. Lord, thank you for reminding us of your love that you would live and die for us. And we pray this morning, Father, that you would work repentance and faith in our hearts, that you would transform our lives, that you would empower us to not just tolerate people that we don't like, to actually pursue them in the same way that you pursued us. Even as our sins were what held you on the cross. Thank you for your grace, we pray in Christ's name, amen.